All right. Some of you are familiar with the name John Calvin. If you're not, he was one of the architects of the Reformation, uh, a prominent theologian who still, whose writings, prolific writings, are still studied today. One time speaking about the book of Revelation, he made this statement, only God knows what this means. <laughs> and I agree, especially when you turn to the topic that we focus on today, which is the beginning of the end of times or the second coming of Christ. And I got to tell you, it's with some fear and trepidation that I have approached this sermon. Because, uh, you know, certainly it is, it is a valuable study for the church, for the body of Christ, to look at what God says about how He's going to bring human history to an end and bring in eternity as we hear it described and spoken about in the Scriptures. But over the centuries, as students of the Word of God, particularly those who have a passion for what we call eschatology, which is the study of the end times, they have come up with numerous understandings about what the Bible really teaches about the second coming of Jesus Christ in terms of the sequence. Early on, at a council in Ephesus, which was a, a gathering of church leaders from around the world as best they could in those days, in 431 A.D., which was, in other words, in the 5th century after the death of Christ, they gathered together and they, they said that anybody who believed in a premillennial rapture of the saints and the second coming of Christ before the millennium were heretics. The vast majority of evangelicals today are premillennialists. And some of you don't even know, never even heard that term before. You know, because what the church tries to do is they try to figure out this 1,000-year reign of the saints, and when is the second coming of Christ, and when is the rapture of the church that's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4. And all, how is this all going to fit together into a time sequence? And they arrive at all different kinds of conclusions about all of that. There are those who are post-millennialist, who means that the kingdom is going to come, if you will, as Christians are salt and light in the world. Things are going to get better and better, and we're going to reach a time where we're going to be able, where we're going to have influence over the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that, Jesus Christ is going to come, and we're going to have the, and that's called post-millennialism. Others are pre-millennialists which believes they believe that Jesus is going to come, there's going to be a rapture of the church, depending upon where you think that fits in the tribulation, whether it's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation. But see how difficult it gets? And it just goes on. And, and, you, know, and you, get, you stand up here and say, okay, i got 20 minutes, 25 minutes, to try to explain all this stuff. And there's all of these, you know, and you're trying to deal with all this stuff. And you know what? It's intimidating. And then God gave me an insight. Because we're going to read today from a letter from the Apostle John. John knew all about the prophecies in Daniel. He probably stood next to Jesus when he's talking about the second coming in Luke chapter 17 and Luke 21. He's probably standing on the other side of Jesus in Matthew 24 when he's talking about all that stuff. He probably was familiar with all the writings of Paul related to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about the rapture of the church and all those kinds of things. And, and yet here in 
the book of Revelation, he sees absolutely no need to try to give us a timeline. None. Zip. Zero. So I'm not going to give you one either. I'm just going to read and try to explain what it is that John says in the book of Revelation about the second coming of Christ and the things that come from it. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Revelation chapter 19 with me. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 1053. For those of you who are just kind of jumping in with us today, we've been studying the book of Revelation in various formats for the last 12 weeks. And we are in our final week of looking at the book of Revelation. Spent a great deal of time looking at the seven letters to the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3. And we've been looking at themes from the book of Revelation ever since then, or something I've called Revelations from Revelation. And today we come to the, the final revelation that we're going to deal with, which is the second coming of Christ, which follows his first coming, which happened in the incarnation, culminated in his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And we read in chapter 19, beginning with 11th verse, these words, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he makes He judges, and he makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. From his mouth came a sharp sword, So that he might strike the nations, he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying in mid-heaven. And this is a, a reach back to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. The same kind of imagery. He says, come, gather together for the great supper of God. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, along with him the false prophet, who had performed signs on his authority, by which he deceived those who had accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image." Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's the millennium that we were talking about earlier. He threw him into the abyss closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. And after that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over these. But they will be priests of God and the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their books by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And from there he moves on to the topic of the beginning of eternity with the new Jerusalem and the new new heaven and etc. Let me just make a few comments about these passages that I've read to help facilitate our understanding of what it is that John is saying to us so that we understand some of the imagery, and then kind of make some concluding comments. Because it is clear that the purpose of John is for all of us to have certainty that human history is going to end. And that the way we live our lives now, whether it's by faith or some other means, has a direct impact on our eternal destiny. And he shows this picture in the arrival of Christ in his second coming on a white horse. A white horse is always the symbol of victory. Once you had conquered a city, a general would would ride into the city on a white horse, you know. And so you have this imagery of him coming on his white horse. And we're given his names here, which confirms the fact that he is God himself. And it's in righteousness that he will judge and he'll make war. And and this idea of judgment is brought out with the fiery flame of his eyes because flame was always used to purify, to test, to see if it's pure or not. And his leadership is signified by the crowns that are on his head. He has a name that nobody knows because nobody has authority over him. And as he moves forward, he comes with a robe that's been stained with blood, his own. And he has this name of authority, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they, he comes with his army behind them. Though as far as we can tell in all of our readings, he never, that army never does anything. They're, they're there for show, as we're going to see as we move forward. And there's a great battle that takes place, sort of. If you look at these texts, every single time where the 
the forces of those who want to have nothing to do with God, those who reject God, who reject the sovereignty of God, the leadership of God, the right of God to his creation, all those, as they assemble themselves for this great battle, always it's just concluded with the action of God. There is really no confrontation. Some of you are familiar with the the story out of the Old Testament where this massive army came and surrounded Jerusalem. And they were just terrified that they were going to be completely destroyed. And all of a sudden, some lepers who were just so hungry and they couldn't find anything from anybody in the city because there was nothing left, they went out just to see if the the enemy would take them in. When they got out there, the camp was empty. And the battle was over. And it was never even fought. It's very much the same picture that you see here in the Scriptures. But there's this call and, and there's the kings of the earth and literally all those who were with him gathered together with the beast and the false prophet. It's interesting that I would tell you that, that one of the interpretive understandings of the book of Revelation is that it tells us the same period of history over and over again. It's almost like if you went back and you read a book about the Revolutionary War and you read about it from the American perspective. And then you read another book from the British perspective. And then maybe you read it again from the American Indian perspective. You're reading the same history over and over again. And each one of the, the histories looks at a different enemy of God, if you will. Babylon, which is man organized without God. You've got the false prophet and the beast. And later you've got the demon that we're going to see in chapter 20. The dragon, I mean, which stands for, for Satan, the serpent. And, and, and it, it tells us how God conquers each one of those. And, it's tell, and they all are conquered at the exact same time in this final battle which we see here as the beast and the kings are killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and then we see the the great dragon being seized and his power limited in beginning of chapter 20 and i saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he seized the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. Now, if you have an interest in really trying to figure out what all that means, the key interpretive thing that you have to deal with is, what does it mean that the dragon, this devil, the Satan, is no longer able, is no longer capable of deceiving the nations? Does that mean he has no power at all in our world during that thousand years? Or is he just unable to prevent the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ during that period of time? I'll leave that to your own spiritual pilgrimage as you work through it. It says after that he must be released for a short time. But somewhere in here during this thousand years and there's lots of discussions about what that actually means, whether that's a symbolic term and that's pretty much what those who ascribe to what we call an amillennial perspective look at is that this is kind of a descriptive term. Others, with the whole idea that the number 10 in the scriptures, particularly in Revelation, is the idea of completion. And and a thousand is actually 10 cubed. It's 10 times 10 times 10. And so it's the idea of this is real completion. So when history is completed, this is what happens kind of idea. And so it's symbolic to them. I probably would give it a little bit more of a literal translation But still, it's very difficult when you get into this journey in terms of, you know, who, you you know, you've got this resurrection that's occurring, sort of, because we never see that there's their physical bodies, and and I know I'm getting to some things that are probably not of 
of a pressing interest to many of you, but he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Is that different than seeing their spiritual, their raised spiritual bodies? Is this kind of what happens when the Scripture says you're absent from the body, and you're present with the Lord, and, and, and yet somehow or another you're still waiting for that final resurrection that we see about in 1 Corinthians 15? I don't know. Where do they reign as they sit on these thrones with God during this thousand years? Is that a reign that takes place in heaven or is it a reign that takes place here on earth? It doesn't tell us. Most thrones are in heaven. God's reigning now, but we would look around our world and say, well, what does that reign really look like? And we have all those kinds of struggles that we come to it. We certainly know that those who are faithful to God from this passage are going to be honored. And then we have this final rebellion as Satan is released and using the imagery from Ezekiel where there was this massive battle between the, the people of God and the, the, the nations around them and they gathered to suppress them known as Gog and Magog and they gathered at a place that came to be known in our language as Armageddon and there was this huge battle it's just in the same place that we find this huge confrontation where they have once again, the nations have been deceived. People have come together to try to reject God, to throw Him and His people off of the earth, if you will. And their number is like the sand of the sea, the Scripture tells us. And they've gathered for this whole battle all those who have been deceived by the evil one. And just like that, fire falls from heaven and consumes them. The battle is over before it's won, before it's fought. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no one was found for them. And we see here that at the end of history, there will be a day of accounting, a day of reckoning, if you will. And based upon our actions and our choices, in particular our choices of faith, our eternal destiny will weigh in the balance. And anyone whose name's not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a powerful message. I've intentionally not given you a sermon outline like I usually do today because I, I want you to walk away with the simplicity of this message. We want to sometimes make it so technical and you know what's going to happen. When, and, and all that stuff is, is fine. We need to move through that journey and, and there need to be people who really think through all of that. But back up a little bit to the first century recipients. And understand the value of that to them, because that's the value to us today as well, from this text. That's why John doesn't really care to bring all of this reconciliation together, at least in my mind and understanding. Here were a group of people who are standing in the first century, and right around 95 to 100 A.D., 60 years after the death of Christ. It was a time period when Christians were seen as, as being lawbreakers, as a time when they were being seen as anti-patriotic, a time when to be a believer was illegal. These were people who were trying to undermine society and, and right on down the line. These were people that should be stamped out and crushed. And that was happening in the cities. There was tremendous pressure to bend instead of be faithful. And John writes to them. He says, listen, I want you to know the future. And I'm giving you, God's given me a picture of what the future is. And I want your knowledge of the future to change how you live now. And one of the messages that comes through all of this is that truth and righteousness will win. Truth and righteousness will be honored. 
and evil and rebellion and disobedience and lack of faith, all of that will perish temporally and eternally. And the choices that you and I make right now are pivotal. And, and we face the same kind of pressures all the time. You know, how is it that I'm going to fit into this world? You know, and what are going to be my standards? And am I really going to stand for truth and righteousness? Or somehow or another, I don't want to look so weird among everybody else. And I want to blend in where the pressure doesn't really come. And, and John says to us, like he said to his own, he said, truth and righteousness will always win. So choose wisely how you live today. Secondly, much of our Christian life, like for the first century believers, is built on the promises of God. What you have is the Word of God telling you that He's going to keep His promises. This is what's going to happen. This is what eternity is like. And John is trying to remind, God has given this revelation to the Apostle John to share with the church, to share with us, that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises for good and for judgment. God is a promise keeper. I I know sometimes it's hard for us to wait, you know. It's been 2,000 years, right? You know, you know, well, you know, I can get away with this. You know, some point down in my life, I can get this right. And we, you know, we want to play with all this stuff. He's telling us, be ready, be alert. God keeps His promises. You know, we we have this idea of waiting. I can, you know, I can remember being a kid, and you know, right after Thanksgiving, and you know, certainly, you know, you put up the Christmas tree, you know, and slowly the presents started kind of going, and, and, and the waiting was just so hard, and it seemed like seemed like December was like ninety days. You know, remember that when you're like, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're like six? Seems like it was like a half a year. Now that you're an adult, it seems like it's three days, you know? And those days are getting shorter every, you know, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and we look at it and say, well, life is so long, you know? And, and I, I just can't put... And, and he says it's worth waiting because God always keeps his promises. And from the backside of eternity looking back, this is going to look like just a blip on the screen. So be faithful in the moment. I think there's one other promise that fits in here and it continues out in the chapters of 21 and 22 is that one day our salvation will be complete you know right now because of the death of christ on the cross and the blood that he shed and the forgiveness that is available for those who can believe in their heart that jesus christ is god and confess with their mouths that he's lord and, and embrace him in his life there is a freedom from the guilt from the of sin, but we live with the consequences of sin in our personal lives, and also the the impact of sin on our on God's creation, and that's why there's there's you know earthquakes and tidal waves, and that's why there's floods, and that's why there's cancer and etc. Because all of creation is groaning under the weight of sinfulness. And even some of us, even as we've given our lives to God and we're trying to work, we're still dealing with the broken relationships and the failures of our past and, and, the, and the guilt and the consequences that go with our wrong actions, our unrighteous actions in the past. And God says, one day your salvation will be complete. I'm going to step in. All of history is going to come to a screeching halt and something new is going to come. So be bold and be strong and hold in. Because Jesus Christ is coming. And one of the most consistent messages about the return of Christ 
is that's going to happen on a time when we didn't expect it. I can admit, I've lived a lot of days recently where I didn't expect the return of Christ. I don't know, any of you guys in that same category? So let's just listen to what Jesus tells us to do as we live with this promise of his return. Living in this perpetual state of expectancy. As he spoke about his return in the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel, this is what he said. Just just listen to these words. He says, be on your guard. We might say, be on your guard because God keeps his promises. Because truth and righteousness really do win and they really do matter. And one day your salvation will be complete. So be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousings. In other words, the indulgence of life, drunkenness, the spirit of rebellion, if you will. And I love this one, the worries of life. How many of us have gotten distracted from God because our, we're worrying about the stuff going on in our lives? You know, how am I going to get my kids through college? And are they going to find jobs or are they going to move back in with me when they get out of college? You know, and we just get distracted by all this stuff. You know, and I, I'm being somewhat facetious. I love my children. But we get consumed with the worries of life and we let our guard down. It says, be on guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the earth, on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man and to have your name read out of the Lamb's book of life. He's coming. He's coming. And He's coming for us. Are we ready for Him? Let's pray for just a minute. God, we celebrate who You are. We celebrate the fact that in your love for your creation and for we humanity at the pinnacle of that creation, you stepped in our, into our world to create a window of grace by which we might step out of unrighteousness into righteousness by our faith in Jesus Christ. God, but when we do that, the time's not done. It's time for us to be on guard. It's time for us to be alert. It's time for us to stand and be different. To pray. And to serve. God, we're grateful for the reminder from your word today. That the final chapter has already been written. It's just up to us to determine on which side we're going to stand when the chapter is closed. God, grant us faith that we might be on guard and be alert, praying at all times that we might be able to withstand all that your scripture teaches. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite our worship team to come forward. We're going to sing a Final song of celebration to our Lord.
the one who is coming again. And as we do, I invite our ushers to come forward.